welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. Okay, so welcome to the Tuesday Night Book Club. John, this is your second time in the hot seat, but you're, you're spoiling us tonight with two for the price of one. So we've got Michael Lewis's The Undoing Project and Daniel Kahneman Thinking Fast and Slow. Was there a reason, John, you went for, for two for the price of the one or was you just feeling generous? No, there's there's an actual reason. Yeah, the um, so the thinking fast and slow is the book all about the work that these two guys did over the course of fifteen years. I don't know. Has anyone read this? Yeah. No, you have. Yeah, it's it's a really good book. And uh, but the Michael Lewis book, The Undoing Project, is the book about the two guys, about their relationship, and about how how they met and how they fell out and how they worked together and everything so it's, it's a fascinating story i read this one first myself because i love michael lewis and uh he talks about the i suppose i'll get started yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, he, so he talks about the uh the two guys daniel kahneman and amos tversky two israeli psychologists and he talks about how they met and what work they did and how they actually changed the face of psychology and economics and lots of other subjects uh, besides and <clears throat> he covers their psycho psychological work kind of in summary and then i said i must read the the, the kahneman book and i was dreading it because i said it's going to be you know a tough uh, academic book but actually kahneman is a fantastic writer as well the book it's so easy to read it, it's 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 dense it has so much in there but never you're never kind of struggling with the language or anything it's very easy to understand so um so i read them in that order i would probably recommend you read them in the other order that you read this one first and then learn about the story afterwards because the story is kind of fascinating so what happened was michael lewis if you know michael lewis he wrote moneyball and uh uh the big short and uh lots of his books have been made into movies and i'm a big fan so he wrote Moneyball. If, if you've seen the movie with Brad Pitt or if you've read the book, it comes down to this topic that uh, professional baseball coaches and baseball managers were being very much swayed by how players looked and athletic, strong-looking athletic players were treated better. They were paid more money for them. Um, um, and the whole industry was built up around... Uh, <clears throat> these scouts who would go to like, every team had hundreds and you know, dozens of scouts that would travel and watch college baseball games and school baseball games. And they'd watch videos after videos. And, uh, so Billy Bean was the character in the movie. He's a real character. He was the general manager of the Oakland athletics and he hadn't got the budget of the big boys, the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox. I actually, so he, uh, he didn't have the budget. So, he, there was a guy called Bill James who was writing these really obscure uh, statistical analysis of baseball. You know, American sports, they love their statistics about, you know, running distances and and uh, all this kind of stuff. Every every player has a career statistic sheet and all this. So he was doing all this intricate statistics and Billy Bean decided to get a statistician in, forget the scouts and focus on the detail, on the data. Now, he wasn't able to find you know a superstar, but he was able to pay less. He was able to get good players for less. And on his limited budget, he was able... If you watch the movie, it was fantastic. On the limited budget, he was able to trade players and he was able to buy players and so on and do very well for his budget. 
And over the course of the years after that, the, the whole sport was taken over by this whole concept. And the Boston Red Sox hired the that guy, Bill James himself, and they, they blew things away as well. But after writing the book, Mike, there was a review of the book and someone said to Michael, or wrote in the review, of course, Michael Lewis did never mentioned Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, who started this whole process of why do we make decisions based on our gut feel? Why do we make these decisions and make wrong decisions? And Michael Lewis asked the author of the review, this uh, economist called Richard Taylor, he said, who are these guys? And he was embarrassed. He said in an interview, he said, I'm embarrassed that I didn't know who they were because Daniel Kahneman had won the Nobel Prize for economics like two years before or the year before. So he was introduced to Daniel Kahneman, who lived in Berkeley, where he lived, lived in the same town. And uh, he met him and he spent years meeting him and talking to him. And he discovered then as well that he taught in Berkeley University for one year and Michael Lewis did. And one of his students who he became friends with was Amos Tversky's son. Now, Amos Tversky had died in the mid-90s. He died of cancer, very young. So <clears throat> he knew Amos Tversky's son, and he was a neighbor of Daniel Kahneman, and he had access to their files, and he talked to Daniel Kahneman, and he wrote this book. So it's all about that concept that um, uh, economists and political theorists and all these people think that human beings and populations of human beings are rational actors, that we make sense in what we do and what we think and that we only deviate from rationality when <clears throat> emotions intervene so when we're upset or when we're drunk or when we're uh you know um emotionally involved but they figured out that it's not true it's actually we're not rational actors and the reason we're not rational actors is because the way our brains work so they actually that was their kind of their life's work so um what I'll do is I'll start with the story of the two men first from the first from the Undoing Project. And then I'll look at their work and then we'll go back to how it all ended up. So uh, they were both Jewish psychologists from uh, working in Israel, right? They were in the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And Daniel Kahneman, they were a similar age. Daniel Kahneman was a few years older, but he was born. They were, well, he, he was born in Palestine as well, but just coincidentally, his wife or his mother was visiting Palestine. But he grew up in France and actually his father... He was a child when the Nazis invaded France and his father was a chemist working for L'Oreal, the, the actual, you know, the cosmetics company. And his father was rounded up in the very first roundup of Jews in France. But the founder of L'Oreal was obviously very influential and said, I need this guy back. He's a chemist. He works in my lab. And he got him out of the camps and he worked in secret for a year for a year or two and then eventually they had to leave and they they fled to southern france to the vichy france government and then they eventually fled they worked they pretended not to be jewish and then they eventually spent the last few years of the war the last months of the war hiding in chicken coops and all sorts of things and eventually went to israel after the war and amos tversky grew, was born in israel and he grew up in israel and they both ended up in the university in uh, Jerusalem, studying psychology. Uh, and how they met was uh, that Daniel asked Amos to speak at one of his lectures. They were they were obviously uh, graduated at that stage. And um, Amos Tversky gave a talk about a subject that he wasn't his own work. It was to do with some mentor of his. And Daniel uh, ripped him apart. He shredded him in front of the class and he literally um, embarrassed him by 
like contradicting everything he said and but that founded the friendship they became very close friends they 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 uh they, they met frequently they ate together they they became like bosom buddies and decided to work together and everyone would say that they were uh like you know the the odd couple oscar and felix they were so different there was in the book here it's how they're described uh so they said that uh danny was always sure he was wrong and amos was always sure he was right and amos was the life of every party and danny didn't go to the parties amos was loose and informal um danny felt as if he had descended from a formal place uh when amos with amos you always picked up where you left off no matter how long it had been since you last saw him with danny there was always a sense you were starting over even if you only met him yesterday Amos was tone deaf, but would sing Hebrew songs. Danny was the sort of person who might have a lovely voice, but you'd never know. Um, Amos was a one-man wrecking ball for illogical arguments. And when Danny heard of an illogical argument, he asked, what might that be true of? Danny was a pessimist. Amos was not merely an optimist. He willed himself to be optimistic. So it goes on and on about these. They were so different. But they said of each other that, uh, or was actually Danny said it later in the book, where he says, we were quicker at understanding each other than we were in understanding ourselves. The way the creative process works is that you first say something and later, sometimes years later, you understand what you said. But in our case, it was foreshortened. I would say something and Amos would understand it. When one of us would say something that was off the wall, the other one would search for the virtue in it. We would finish each other's sentences and frequently did. And we kept surprising each other and it still gives me goosebumps. So michael lewis in interviews afterwards about the book he talks about like this love story between these two men that, that, that it's not really in the book but he describes how close they were like they were closer to each other than to their own wives and so on and the the work they did was um was fantastic like they did more they did so much better work together than they could have ever done apart even though they were both super intelligent like amos tabarski everyone that met him said he was the most intelligent person they knew and someone said there's a test of how intelligent you are is that the sooner you realize that Amos is cleverer than you, the cleverer you are <laughs> because he's clever. So he was going to parties and meeting like, renowned international physicists. And I, I, he met this physicist and afterwards the physicist asked his host, who was that young physicist? And he said, Oh no, that was Amos. He's a psychologist. And he said, but he was the best physicist in the room. <laughs> you know, so he, he had a gift and he was so um, outgoing and, yeah, and, and Danny was the opposite. Um, so what they did was they, they looked at this concept of um, this rational uh, actor and how we're not such a rational actor. And they came up with, uh, and this is in the 70s, they came up with these biases or they're called heuristics. So a heuristic is like, a, it comes from the Greek word of that same Greek root as eureka. So it's discovery. So heuristic is like, oh, that's how it works. And it's a kind of a quick uh, rule of thumb to solve a problem so they then going back to the the book thinking fast and slow they describe um how they came up with their theories and danny so daniel kahneman wrote this book in 2001 or 2000, no 2011 i think and he talks about system one system two in your brain so he really he he does go away. Uh, he does go into lengths to say that this is a real shortcut. There is no system one two in your brain. There is no people in your head. But he talks about how we react to things. So system one is the intuitive, quick um, response to something. So you see something and you think 
you make a choice, you make a decision, or you make a judgment. And then system two is the logical calculating kind of part that works in the background. So they liken it to uh, 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 that people have cognitive illusions, the same as optical illusions. So do you know the, the lines where there's two lines parallel, one has arrows pointing out and one has arrows pointing in at the ends, and one is, they're both the same length, but you'll think one is longer. And when you measure it, you see that, that they're actually the same length. So system one is saying that's longer. And then when you measure it, system two is saying, no, they're the same length. And they're kind of contradicting each other in your head. So um, that's called the Muller-Lyer test. So they say there is, there's lots of these cognitive illusions that we kind of think ourselves. And uh, the one that um, the one that they talk about is the bat and ball test. So I think you've all probably seen this. A lot of the books and the book club take a lot of the same uh, experiments that were done. So the bat and ball test is uh, a bat and ball together cost one dollar ten cent, and the bat costs a dollar more than the ball. How much do they cost? So the system one brain says, "Oh, a dollar and ten cent," and if you're just if your system one is working and is in control, that's the answer, and off you go. But it's actually a dollar five and five cent because the, the bat has to be a dollar more than the ball. So the the thing is that the system two brain can actually work it out and say, "Oh yeah, it's a it's a dollar five and five cent." But they say the system two brain is lazy. The system two <laughs> it should be there to help, but it doesn't help that often. It kind of sits back and waits. So. Um, and the thing is, uh, a lot of people that, that it's that you do that extra step, um, and they started testing people with these cards. They call it the Add One Challenge or the Add One uh, Experiment, where you have uh, cards, a stack of cards with random four digits on it, and you, you pick it up and you look at the four digits and you add one to each digit and you call it out. So if it says one, two, three, four, you say two, three, four, five, and you keep doing that, and that's a System One brain action. But if you're asked to add three digits to each one. You can't do it that quickly. You have to think about it, and that's your system two brain. And they even say that if you put uh, a pencil in your mouth like this when you're doing a task, and you're smiling, you force yourself to smile. You're in system one brain, and if you put the pencil right there, you force yourself to frown, and you're kind of and frowning, even frowning your forehead, furrowing your brow, triggers your brain into system two because that's what you do when you're thinking. You know, you furrow your brow. So they worked out all these. Um, these in interesting experiments and um they talked about anchoring so they can experiment with uh they'd ask people about redwood trees and about gandhi when he died so they say they start by asking the question uh uh do you think the tallest redwood tree is taller or shorter than 1200 feet and then people will say oh shorter and then they ask the person what do you think is the height of the tallest redwood tree so if they asked you first, did you think it was taller or less than 1,200 feet, you go with a low estimate. And if they asked you, sorry, a high estimate. And if they asked you first, did you think it was taller or less than 100 feet, you go with a low estimate. So you're actually anchoring yourself into a high number or a low number. And they same with Gandhi. They said, do you think Gandhi was older than 114 or younger than 114 when he died? Uh, or they might ask a different group, do you think Gandhi was 20 when he died? And then when they ask you for the number, you're anchored high or low. And they found that it doesn't even have to be, they can anchor you with anything. So what they do apparently in Harvard is for these uh, statistical classes is the class comes in and they ask everyone to write down 
the last two digits of their mobile phone number. And everyone does and reads it and hands it up. And then they ask you, what do you think is the percentage of countries in the United Nations that are in Africa? And it's just the people with low numbers on the last two digits of their phone numbers always estimate low, and the people with high numbers always estimate high. So the anchor doesn't even have to be related to the task at hand. You're just seeing these numbers, and your brain clicks into that form. And then they also talk about the... Uh, like, all these experiments are fascinating. The, the the Michael Lewis books gives you kind of an overview, and then the Kahneman book gives you all these details. And there's tons more than I've written down. Um they talk about the availability heuristic. So uh, they ask people, they ask groups of people to measure their own assertiveness. So the first thing they do is they say to one group, they say, write down six episodes in your life when you were assertive. And apparently six is good. You can, A lot of people can think of six events of any nature. And then they ask them, now tell us how assertive you are in life. And then they ask a different group to name 12 episodes of when they were assertive. Now, that's hard to do, and a lot of people, and no, very few people can name 12 episodes of anything. So, you might, those people might name seven, eight, nine episodes of when they were assertive more than the other people. And then they're asked to say, How assertive are you? And they'll always claim that they're less assertive, even though they have given more evidence because they failed to complete the task and they fail to think of assertive things, they think they're less assertive. Um, uh, and that's like the, yeah, that, that comes back to the news. Uh, you only remember what's available to you, or you, you, you give more influence. You're influenced more by stuff that's available to you. So it comes back to that whole concept that you know, there's more people, way more people die in traffic accidents than terrorism, but terrorism is on the news and you can recall terrorist events, so they be, it becomes more uh, influential on your brain. Um, there was some story about apple spray where uh, people, or it was a, a, a story, uh, yeah, a news story that they talked about where apples were sprayed with some chemical in America, uh, you know, a, a, a pesticide, and there was a story in the news that this caused some problems with children at, at the apples, and the numbers affected were so low it was minuscule. But there was a huge drop off in Apple sales at, as a result, and they reckon that there was more harm done by the lack of children eating apples than there was <laughs> if they'd eaten the apples in the first place. Um, the other one they talk about then is that representativeness or stereotyping. I think everyone is familiar with stereotyping. Um, it kind of shows how, and, and, but it shows how our brains don't work logically. Um, the, the the first one they talked about was the, the so they've all these uh, there's the Steve story and there's the Tom W and the Linda so the Steve story is they describe Steve um, as uh, they said he's very shy so this is a, you know, another experiment they'll describe this to a group of people and then they'll ask questions about it so they say Steve is shy and withdrawn invariably helpful but little with little interest in people are in the world of reality a meek and tidy soul excuse me. He has a need for order and structure and a passion for detail. So they ask, is he more likely to be a librarian or a farmer? And everyone, like, you know, they get 90% people answering librarian. Of course, librarian. Yeah, he's, he's meek and he's, he likes order. He likes detail. But there's like there's 30 times more farmers than librarians in the world and in America. So the chances of him being a farmer are actually way more. 
and everyone should know that, <laughs> but you're kind of driven into that stereotype by reading the thing. And then the other one is the Tom W. Similar, they 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 did a they said there's nine departments in this college, right? They did a lot of research with college students, so they said there's nine departments in the college: business administration, computer science, engineering, humanities, etc. They list them all out, and then they describe this guy Tom W. So they say he's um now they say as well that. This is the result of a psychological test, and they say it's of uncertain validity. So they question, they even give you doubt about this, but they do ex describe him. He's of high intelligence, lacking in creativity, need for order and clarity, neat and tidy systems. Uh, his writing is dull and mechanical, enlivened by corny puns and uh, flashes of imagination of the sci-fi type. So they're, they're, they're building the story that he's a nerd, right? He's a nerdy type. And... Uh, before they give the Tom W picture, the, they ask people to list just a, a random person. How likely are they to be in each of the departments? And it falls into the category of which department is bigger. So it starts with the humanities and it works its way down. And at the end, the small departments are the computer science and the librarians and all that. But when they read the Tom W story and they read about how nerdy he is and he's like sci-fi and you know he, he's, um, he, he lacks creativity, they always put them in the computer science department and they're saying, but why, you know, you're, you're just driving the stereotype. So there you tend, people tend to ignore what they call the base rate of the story of the facts when they're driven by these stereotypes. And then the one that's most fascinating is the Linda story where they talk about, they had three, they wrote, they just wrote this experiment as, as if, you know, thinking they'd learned something. And they said, so they gave this to a group of people. Linda is 31 years old, single, outspoken, very bright. She majored in philosophy. And as a student, she was deeply concerned with issues of discrimination and social justice and participated in anti-nuclear demonstrations. And then they asked a group of people to say, where do you think she works? And they had, she's a teacher in an elementary school. She works in a bookstore. Um, she's active in the feminist movement. She's a psychiatric worker. She's a bank teller. And they gave that list. And so one group had a group of a list of jobs, including she's a bank teller. And the other group had a list of jobs, which said she's a bank teller and is active in the feminist movement. And the group that saw that list put the bank teller that's active in the feminist movement way higher on the list. So they said, okay, that makes sense. We've, we've driven the stereotype, you know, towards that, that, uh, uh, feminist movement thing. And they said, that makes sense. Then they gave, the same experiment to one group where they were given the choice. Linda is a bank teller and Linda is a bank teller and is active in the feminist movement in the same list. And they said, which is more likely rank them in order of likelihood and everyone, well, the majority put that she's a bank teller and active in the feminist movement higher than she's a bank teller. And they said to the groups, you know, afterwards, if it was a class, they would say, but you've, you've broken that's that's logic doesn't make sense. How could it be more likely? that she's a bank teller active in the feminist movement than her being a bank teller, right? Because one contains the other. So the logic made no sense. So eventually, they were so frustrated by this that they gave the experiment to a group of people and they only gave them two choices. She's a bank teller. She's a bank teller active in the feminist movement, which is more likely. And they picked the bank teller who's active in the feminist movement, even though it's totally, you can't, it should not be more likely Obviously, if she was a bank teller, it's more likely. So they just they, they just blew their minds that how people are forced into thinking these ways. Um, 
so I'll just go through some other like th- these. This book is just a treasure trove of of these little samples. Uh, intuition versus formula. So a guy came up with another uh, psychologist, Meal, came up with uh, this book about how you can take anything that requires skill uh, and break it down into its components and look at the uh, build a formula that can do the task, and the formula will always be more accurate than the person using their skill because uh, doctors will, they, they, they ask doctors to look at x-rays or scans and they mixed up the scans so that the same doctor saw the same scan twice. And a lot of times they contradicted themselves when they saw the same picture, you know, uh, later in the, in a group. Um, the one they talk about as well as the, the wine experts who think that they know everything. And the, they worked out that the, the quality of wine is dependent really on very few things. It's the weather in the year that it was grown and harvest, harvested. So they could easily look at the weather for the weather charts and the weather records for parts, the vineyards in France and so on. And uh, they found that they beat the experts, you know, all, all the time on this. So, but there was like such a backlash there because these experts are kind of saying we're, you know, we've trained for this and we've done all this work. And it's like you can't break down. And it's, of course, it's becoming more and more popular or more and more apt now with artificial intelligence and all these programs. But they're not talking about crazy, complicated formulas. It's very simple stuff. Um, the other one is regression to the mean, which I think everyone's heard of that. Where, uh, oh, yeah, these guys, just to divert, they weren't just psychologists working in the university, right? This was Israel in the 50s and 60s and 70s where you were, they were at war. Uh, you know, there was the Suez Crisis, there was the Six Day War, there was the Yom Kippur War, and everybody in Israel was it was a soldier. You know, even even these psychology professors. So, like Amos Tversky was a paratrooper. Uh, he was paratrooped into Syria in the Six Day War, and he he uh, oh yeah, at a training session, a guy um, uh, was was planting an explosive. This was in training, and he was in a unit, and they were, this guy was planting explosive under a fence of barbed wire. And he uh, passed out uh, on top of the explosive, and the commander said, "Nobody move!" And Amos Tversky ran, uh, broke the order, and ran. Get, picked up the guy, carried him away from the explosive, jumped on top of him, and the thing blew up. And he ended up having shrapnel in his body. I think they said he he had shrapnel in his body the whole for the rest of his life, and he got a medal for that, even though he disobeyed the orders. But um, like just loads of stories of they, these guys. They go to America for work, you know, for to colleges they go to harvard and michigan and they went to they both went to different colleges for their phds but you know a war would break out in israel and uh, they would just go home and join the army you know they would leave they would get on the next plane they said the planes flying into israel were just full of men returning home and uh, the amount of times you'd see uh, in the book is amos arrives in to his house kisses his wife hello goes to his bedroom puts on his uniform and drives off again you know to join a unit but um yeah. So, th- but they did in their, as as time went on, and they became more eminent psychologists. They they were working for the army psychology units, and uh, one of the things was a fighter pilot training um, to talk about. Go back to the regression to the mean. So the fighter pilot trainer would say, "I must scold my pilots and not praise them because when someone does something wrong, and I scold him, he gets better, and when someone does something good and I praise him, he gets worse." And they had to be explained that that was just this concept of regression to the mean, that everyone who 
if you do something poorly, the chances are you'll do better the next time. If you do something well, the chances are you'll do worse the next time. Uh, and it relates to the famous um, the Sports Illustrated curse. They say in America that if you're on the cover of Sports Illustrated, you're going to have a very poor season the following year. And it's because to get on the cover of Sports Illustrated, you had to be, have an exceptional year uh, previous to that. And the chances of you doing that again are slim. You know, you'd probably have a worse year the following year. So it's not really a curse. Um, but then again, just to go back to the, the story of the two guys, the, that was Amos Tversky and the explosion. The other one was um, Daniel Kahneman was assigned. This is early days in the 60s the, when he was very young. and But the whole country was only six years old, they said. So he, they gave him the job of writing the questionnaire to choose who would be an officer and who would be given leadership in the army and who would go to the tank squadron, who would go to the air force and so on. And, uh, he found that again, all related to their work. He found that the interviewers were using a lot of judgment, personal judgment on who would be good. And they, they were finding that the results in the field were not matching the choices. So he made a very logical questionnaire and he said, uh, you must answer these questions. You must talk about behavior. You must make it logical. You must you must score them on each section individually and not let that influence the next one. And it turned out to be amazing. It worked a treat. And then it's still being operated today by the Israeli military, you know, 40, 50 years later. And uh, the interviewers had a revolt because they said, we're, again, like the doctors and the wine experts. They said, you know, we, we know what we're doing. We're, we're, we can judge these people. And he said, okay. He said, after you've done my questionnaire, uh, I want you to put that aside and then close your eyes and uh, think about the person in front of you and give them your own judgment. And of course, with the anchoring, as we know, they were influenced by the questionnaire and the, they tended to match the questionnaire. And he, this was in the 50s. No, this was in the, yeah, it was in the late 50s, early 60s. Late 50s, I think, yeah. Uh, so years later, when he won the Nobel Prize, he became a bit of a celebrity in Israel and he was taken around to schools and army bases and he was shown somebody or he was introduced to the people who do the the questionnaire today or 10 years ago the 2011 or 2012 and uh he was surprised to see that they were using almost exactly the same questionnaire that he wrote back in the day and he was talking to one of the interviewers and uh one of the organizers and he said and then when they're finished we tell them to close their eyes <laughs> it's exactly what he told them to do all that time ago um uh, oh, and then the planning fallacy. So he, this is a great one. I've never heard this before, but it makes so much sense. It's, have you heard of WYSIWYG? You know, what you see is what you get. It's a shortened form of what you see is what you get. So he came up with this really bad acronym, which is what you see is all there is. So the planning fallacy um, is also called the optimism uh, uh, fallacy. So they were trying to see, could they make these decision could they train school children on making decisions and making judgments and try and instead of waiting until they get to the army and trying to fix them, then could they get the population as a whole to be better at making decisions? And they wanted to do it in schools. So they decided to come up with a curriculum for this. And they had all the experts in the room and they said, how long do you think it's going to take to write a textbook and build a curriculum and train the teachers and get it all up and running? And they decided all of them decided, yeah, two years. And then he said, okay, stop. And he said, has anyone any experience of building a curriculum or writing a textbook? And they all started to say, oh, yeah, we did it for this and we did it for that. And we did it for maths and we did it. And it said, how long did it take? And he said, oh, seven to 10 years. And 
how many succeeded and they worked out they went away and looked at it and they said 40 percent succeeded there was a 60 percent failure rate and when they finished this um this whole thing it did take more than seven or eight years and it didn't succeed as they thought it would so uh it th- there's two concepts there there's what you see is all there is which is you can only see uh, what's in front of you and you can't see other, and it, it becomes, a, there's a thing called competitor neglect or competition neglect where companies don't consider what the competition is doing. They only look at what's in-house. Um, and it comes down to that Donald Rumsfeld unknown unknowns concept as well, you know, that you have to allow for all those other things that are going to come along and bite you. So um, so he he actually talks about, uh, I don't think they came up with it. It was someone else came up with this thing of the, the pre-mortem has anyone heard of that? I'd never heard of this until I read this book. So they said, you come up with a plan and you design the plan and you set it up. And, and before you implement it, you ask everybody involved to say, okay, if this plan fails, in imagine this plan fails in a year's time, this plan has failed. Write the story of how it failed. And it forces people to think about failure because they haven't been thinking about failure up to now in the future. So it forces them to think about failure as if they were in the future looking back and a lot of stuff comes out then it's like oh why didn't we think of that it's called the pre-mortem so it's very interesting um so then um their big breakthrough so they wrote this paper in um 1974 they wrote a paper on uh, judgment under uncertainty in the science magazine it was a big hit and then uh their big, their big work was 1979. They wrote this paper on prospect theory. And that kind of got into economics and political science and uh, sports and everything. So there was a guy called Bernoulli in uh, 1738 that he had came up with this theory of expected utility theory. So there's the book is full of these um, gambles. They're all, they're called Bernoulli gambles. So, you know, it's like, would you prefer a 50-50, you know, 50% chance of having 100 euros and a 50% chance of zero, or would you prefer a sure thing of 40, you know? So you're, it, and they're kind of, they weigh up mathematically that if it's 50-50, 100-0, then that gamble is worth 50, uh, but 40 is sure. So a lot of people take the sure thing, you know, as opposed to the gamble, even though the gamble is worth more, theoretically. But Bernoulli took that concept and said, there's the concept of wealth, and then there's the concept of utility. And he said, utility, the more money you have, the less utility there is for each additional unit of wealth. So the, the first hundred you win is more valuable to you than the, than the tenth hundred you win. And, you know, it's like the difference between 100 and 200 is much bigger in someone's mind in utility terms than the difference between 900 and 1,000. Even though it's only 100, it's still 100, but that first hundred is worth more to you than the last hundred so uh this was a common uh this expected utility theory was a co- and he had weighted it so that you know he had weighted not to 100 in terms of wealth and then not to 100 in terms of utility and the first 10 you know the, the, the from zero to 10 and 10 to 20 are worth a lot more than the 30 to 40 and the 40 to 50 and you still end up with 100 but there's this kind of curve um so he that was a common theory in in economics around the world, uh, you know, since the 1700s, so hundreds and hundreds of years. But they they were able to pick holes in it. They were able to show examples of where where it didn't work. Um, trying to think now, do I remember? There's the Jack and Jill 
I know. There's the Jack and Jill story and the Anthony and Betty story. Like, okay, so say Jack and Jill each have five million. And but yesterday Jack had one million, and today and yesterday Jill had nine million. So even though they both have five, they should both be equally happy. But Jack went from one to five. He's delighted. And Jill went from nine down to five. So she's not happy. So there's that concept of the history of the wealth as well. It's not just what you have. It's what you had before. Uh, and then there's the Anthony and Betty uh, gamble where Anthony has a, a million and Betty has four. And they're given options between a gamble and a sure thing so that they both end up with exactly the same. But in one sense, Anthony's got a good chance of winning, and in another sense, Betty has a chance of losing. So they came up with these concepts, that this Bernoulli theorem, and they were very surprised to see that nobody had addressed these flaws in 250 years. And this is where prospect theory came from. And it comes down to when they did these experiments, they did lots of experiments with groups of people, and they discovered that when you gamble and there's a chance of winning, people are risk-averse. They're more likely to go for the sure thing. So if you had a gamble... You know that you could win, uh, you could lose, you could win nothing or a hundred. Um, but the sure thing was uh, forty, so that's let you know less than you'd go for the forty. But then they said, let's flip it and look at losses. If you were, if you had a gamble that you were going to win, you were going to lose money, or you could pick, get a gamble and lose less. People tended to go for the gamble. So even though the the mathematics are the same and the weighting is the same. Uh, it didn't fit with Bernoulli's theorem that people were risk-seeking when it, when the gamble was about losing money and the people were risk-averse when the gamble was about winning money. And they came up with this thing called the endowment fallacy as well, which is that something you have is worth more to you than something you want. Uh, and they talk, there's lots of examples of that, about uh, uh, especially around wine again, about people who bought wine and you know they could sell it, but they're they're not willing to sell it because they have it, and you know it's all this kind of stuff. But they came up with these three concepts to do with prospect theory. Am I able to share the screen there, Rob? I should be. No, I can't. Let me just make a co-host there. There you go. So the three concepts are the prospect theory is on the. I don't know how this works now with the audio podcast, but the prospect theory is on the left and it's an S-shaped curve. So you can see, um, first of all, the reference point, so the dot in the middle of, of the that, that you have to relate your utility to a reference point. That was the, the, the Jack and Jill story was important. And then you have diminishing sensitivity, which is that as, as the S-curve goes up, as, you, as the dollar amount increases on the X-axis there, the, the, the value, they call it the psychological value, uh, ends up being less, you know. So the old, you know, money later money is le worth less than early money. But the key one is that the difference in the curve that the the loss curve is much steeper than the uh, gain curve. So people are more averse to losses than they are attracted to gains. Um, and that was the key that showed the the difference between the their theory and the Bernoulli theory. Um, and it also, they were also able to weigh uh, probability versus decision weight. So the way Bernoulli said, we have wealth and utility. They also said, you also have, if you're thinking about the probability of something happening. So this is like the probability, if you're going to an operation, if someone says, you know, the, there's a 10% chance you might not make it, or there's a 50% chance you might 
survive it. There's a 90% chance you'll survive all these things. Um, what do they say? Unlikely events are overweighted. So people, if you say, oh, there's a 1% chance you'll die, people will actually put more pre- more weight on the 1%. They'll make it sound like in their head it's 10%. And then n- near certain events are underweighted. So if you said to someone, you're going to an operation, but there's a, you'll, there's a 99% chance you'll survive, in their head, they bring it way back down to 90 or 80% chance. You know, they, they, um, they underweight the near certainties. Um, and then uh, the other one then is um, framing. There's another concept where I think this is common enough. It's the difference between saying something is 90% fat-free or saying something has 10% fat in it. Uh, there's, uh, apparently, there's a whole rule now around uh, describing foods that you can't, you have to say, properly that there's 10% fat in this as opposed to saying it's 90% fat free um, and that's about and, and there's loads of examples in the book of really ones that you that would tickle you about how, you know the diff- just changing the wording of a sentence and how and, and they have evidence you know they say we'll, we've given this to, to a group of uh, subjects and we've asked them to choose and uh, you know it's like 90% choose it this way and then 90% choose it the other way it's the same thing it's exactly the same thing um, so then, um, what time is it? Quarter to eight. So the, the last one on the on the kind of concepts. There's tons of concepts that I haven't even touched. Now it's just a great book. Um, uh, they talk about the two selves. There's the experiencing self and the remembering self. And I don't know if you've heard this one. It's uh, um, it's all around the peak end theory, the peak end and the duration neglect as well as and the the famous one they look at is the colonoscopy where this um. They describe how in the early days it was there was they didn't use anesthetic. It was quite uncomfortable and painful even. And they had the person who had the colonoscopy for uh say 30 minutes, uh, had a very painful experience. But they found that if you left the camera in for longer, but that the last so instead of 30 minutes, it was 40 minutes, but that the last 10 minutes was more pleasant, was less uncomfortable. That and they asked these people, would you be more likely to come back for another one, or how rated in comfort? So the people that suffered more but had a more pleasurable end to the experience were more likely to come back. And it's called peak end, or it's called uh, duration neglect. So it's about and same with movies. You know, the people remember the end of a movie, uh, and then someone had an example where they listened to a uh, an operatic record and the last bit was scratched and it ruined the whole record and they said yeah but you experienced logically you experienced the beauty of the record for 99 percent of the time but you're in your memory so you had your experiencing self and your memory self so again all very interesting psychological uh, experiments so then back to the story of the two the two men right they they uh they wrote these papers together they, they lived in each other's pockets then um they went to america and then things started to go a bit awry, right? The, the, I think it was because Amos was more outgoing and more popular and more gregarious. Uh, he drew more attention and he started to get more uh, praise for the work. And there was this kind of jealousy, I think, started between the two of them that uh, like they would never attribute an idea to any of them. They would toss coins to say who got their name first on the paper. They would... Excuse me. They literally never remembered who came up with these ideas. They worked so closely together. But Amos was getting a lot of the praise for the Tversky. He's getting a lot of the praise for it. And uh, they went to America, and uh, 
they said Michael Lewis said that uh, Amos Tversky got the fastest tenure position in the history of academia. He announced that he wanted to move from Israel, and Stanford University heard in the morning, and they gave him a position in the afternoon. Uh, I think he, before he accepted it, he was also offered a position by Harvard, and he tossed the or he didn't toss a coin. He looked at the he think he preferred the weather in Stanford in California. So he went to Stanford and he he was a big star and then uh, in in academia like not in the world but uh, in terms of psychology in terms of science he was a big star and Daniel Kahneman went went to British Columbia to a smaller university and he wasn't as famous and Amos got the MacArthur Genius Award which is this big award it's like the uh, it's a science award and he was admitted to the Academy of Sciences the American Academy of Sciences and. I don't know. It was very strange. It was like Daniel was almost Danny was almost neglected in the sense, and they grew apart, and there was a lot of jealousy, and they still put the, they still actually print uh, publish papers with both their names on it, but they were actually working separately at that stage, and it, it came to a head when, uh, so their theory was so popular and so uh, famous that a lot of people were taking pot shots at them as well. They were a lot of criticizing of their theory. So this German. Um, a uh, psychologist had written a big uh, criticism of their theory and uh, Amos came to Daniel, Daniel and he wanted to fight. He wanted to write an, a, a response to it and Daniel didn't. And he actually said to him, he said, look, you, will you do this, do this for me as a friend? It's the first time I've ever asked you to do it as a friend. And he said, okay, I will. And then um, as they got into the writing of the response, uh, Daniel got more and more uncomfortable with the way it was going and he asked, he said, I'm not doing it. And he said he had a dream uh, that he had six months to live. This is Daniel now. He had a dream that he had six months to live and he said to Amos, if I only had six months to live, I don't want to, I don't want to be doing it, doing this, right? You know, responding to a critic. And they kind of walked off, he walked off and they, they kind of broke up as it were. And that was in the early 90s, 93, 94. And he said three days later, Amos rang him and said, I have six months to live. The other guy <laughs> had cancer and he was diagnosed with cancer. Now he lived a few years longer. And, um, uh, but I think there's the book, the way that's written in the book, it looks like he may have, uh, committed suicide or had assisted suicide at the end, but he was riddled with cancer and he was very, even though he's only in his fifties. But, um, so that was very sad. And uh, so for the last few years, they actually got very close again because they knew this was happening and they, 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 they were, uh, they were really close. They spoke every day, and um, I think at that stage, Daniel had moved to Berkeley, and it was he was closer physically and everything. But after the after he died, the you know things were never the same. Um, so the the one thing that uh, Daniel Kahneman was working on when he after that was the Undoing Project, which is the reason for the book being called that. And it was um, sounds very interesting. It was about. It was it was uh, primed by his nephew was killed in a plane crash. He was in the Israeli Air Force and he had a week before he was released from the Air Force and the plane crashed. He was in the back. He was a navigator and the pilot got blinded by a flare and crashed. And they both died. And everyone was saying, oh, it's a pity he was. If only he was released from the Air Force the week before or if only the flare hadn't gone off or if only the, the pilot, you know, had whatever. They, they did all these what ifs and if only and of course, Kahneman was thinking now, he started thinking about that and saying, well, they're trying to undo the, the, the tragedy. And it's very common for people to undo the tragedy. But he said, why are they selecting those topics to undo? Why didn't they say, 
if only there was no air force or if only there was no such thing as an airplane you know there's there, there's topics you go to and there's topics you don't go to and he was trying to understand that and, and you know and i don't think he ever finished it um amos was gone and there was no he couldn't get the get it working uh and it's a common one it's like you know the guy that gets knocked down on his way to work because he changed his route and people always say oh why did he change his route uh it, whereas they could have thought you know why didn't he if he lives in a different city you know just why are they choosing those close um items um so yeah well, and then of course then Dan, daniel kahneman won the nobel prize in 2011 i think it was for i don't know 2003 for economics for that prospect theory um and it uh because it just became a huge uh uh change and how econo econ economists thought about uh how people thought and how groups of people thought and uh how they responded how they made decisions so that's it that's the, the two books um they're not they're they're very much related and i think they do i think they do tell the same stories from two different angles and it's um that's why i picked the two of them thanks Declan. There's a, there's a career in storytelling for you, I think. <laughs> um, no, it's magic. But, like, that systems one, system two thing fascinates me. Like, just even, John, in, in your own world, like, the, where, where you come from, like, what, do you see that at play, um, say, in the workplace, let's say, system one, system two, that, that shortcut in the brain kind of leading us down? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, I... I have this thing, it's not so much in work, but I'm studying at the moment and I keep, it's almost a refrain that I keep having to say to people is, I can't do that because I like to go back to first principles. I like to build a case from the bottom up. I don't want to jump in and make an assumption. And so I'm obviously, I, I'm forcing my system to, yeah. to, 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 to validate uh, decisions and, uh, and uh, it, uh, that's just the way I work. But yeah, that's kind of that's a, that's an example of that where, you know, don't just uh, take the evidence that's given to you. Uh, go back and see where did that evidence come from and how how it got there, and you'll end up with a stronger argument for any case you want to make. Then, yeah, it's, it's probably a it's probably a dying art with the whole <laughs> the character Twitter opinions that are out there. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, I'd I'd say um, there's tons and tons more of those examples and you know you can get kind of tired that's the thing you know some of these books there's just more and more examples of the same thing but they go he goes through all those different biases and heuristics and how they tested them and how other people have tested them and the criticisms of them and uh, and it's really well written and explains it and it makes a lot of sense anybody have any comments or questions to ask john yeah, I was just going to ask John that. I don't really understand the whole system one, system two, but what I was just wondering was around, well, two things. Firstly, you know, if you're naturally clever, do you have a more preference to go to one no, over the other? No, they actually said in the, they said the first uh, um, example of that system one, system two, they actually went straight to statistic statisticians. Yeah. And gave them the questions and they were equally as likely to get the thing wrong, you know, as, okay. as anyone. Okay. And, uh, yeah. Which, which kind of falls into my second question. Does it, did it have any impact on whether you were educated or non-educated? Um, 
Yeah, it probably did in a sense. It not not so much educated. It's like if you're an expert. So they talk about chess players a lot. That chess players can see the board, um, and they can almost use System One at such a deep level. You know, they can see patterns intuitively that that should be System Two. So they've trained themselves into kind of their System One becoming no becoming more more powerful and more accurate, but. Uh, they said it. It's uh, it's the ten thousand hours thing, you know, that you can't just do that. It's not that ed- education, really. It's more kind of that practice. So they said they, there was other examples: chess players, uh, you know, these surgeons, or diagnosticians. I, oh yeah, like they were saying. What was interesting was um, uh, what's the who are the guys that look at the oncologists, right? Who look at cancer patients, right? They don't tend to get results as quickly as. As um, anesthetologists, they said anesthetists are the medical practitioners who get instant results, right? So if they put someone under, or they're looking at uh, they're looking at their vital signs, it's all very instant. So they said anesthetists can tell if uh, a patient is in trouble much quicker than an oncologist because oncologists aren't used to you know they're making diagnoses and then uh, the treatment takes takes months and you know there's no linkage, whereas the they said, if they said in the surgery room, if there's a surgery going on, if the anesthetist raises a hand and says it's a problem, everyone stops and takes notice. Mm. Yeah, fascinating. Mm. Um, John, did you notice um, uh, yourself um, using in the real life, uh, maybe it was. Um, say when the salesman is trying to use the anchoring <laughs> on you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I was thinking in my head reading the book. I was like, oh, because they talk about the the negotiation, yeah. you know, where people are negotiating and whoever starts, whether it's the buyer or the seller, whoever starts with the number, whether it's the buyer making an offer or the seller putting a price up, that's the anchor. Then everything kind of goes towards that end. You know, yeah. so uh, it's definitely if I was buying like there was there's examples in the book about buying and selling houses and uh, and, and things like that. So, yeah, definitely make the car salesman make the first <laughs> put the first number on the table. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, no, you should go in. Actually, you should make the first number. Yeah. But he, uh, but he they, they talk about uh, and and like it's really well written because he does talk about criticism of the method himself. You know what, what critics have said, and and he's taken on board that some like and of course in that description of the two characters, Daniel Kahneman is the one who's always in doubt. You know they said he will doubt his own first decision. You know whereas uh, Amos was more arrogant and more uh, self confident. So I recommend yeah read the books. They're great. John, they're definitely on my list anyway. <laughs> <laughs> thanks a million for that that was a really great job really enjoyed that so um yeah we're we're back so with the last one in two weeks time i think susan was trying to push me into the <laughs> i'll have to uh i'll have to dust down a few books there now and see what i can come up with but um yeah listen john thank, thanks again and uh thanks for everybody for joining and um thank you john. thanks a million john it's really right. good Bye, Talk everyone. To you later. Thank you. Bye-bye. Have a lovely evening. Bye now. Bye-bye. Bye, Ashley. Bye, Brendan. Bye-bye. Hey, folks. Thanks so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, 
could you please consider helping me extend the reach of the podcast that little bit further? You can do that in a number of ways. The number one way is to subscribe on your app of choice. This helps me with the chart ranking, leading to more folks stumbling across the podcast and checking it out. You could also repost it on your social media channels. Any of them would be great. And maybe even tell a friend in person or over the phone, pick up the phone, give them a call and tell them about the 1% Better podcast. Tell them about this episode or one that you've heard in the past. And it will do. I would really appreciate it. In the last year, we set up a 1% Better Slack community, which you can join for free. And interact with me and other members of the community and improve through holding each other accountable and sharing monthly challenges. It's a lot of fun. Check it out. I'm into season four of this incredible journey and the more of these interviews and solo shows that I research, record and share, the better I believe that they get and more loaded with actionable takeaways that you can learn from. I know I've learned so much from it so far and it's always really, really fulfilling and rewarding when I hear from you on what you took from it. So do reach out, rob at robofthegreen.ie. And of everybody that listens, 90% listen and enjoy, but only around 10% actually take action, write down takeaways and put them into practice. I am convinced that if we can move that number a bit higher, the listeners will not only make steps forward towards their goals, but they will be more fulfilled and happy and better. Change doesn't happen overnight. It is hard, but it's all about taking the first step, whatever that is for you. You can absolutely do this. Make a plan, be deliberate, take action. Don't overreach. Start with those small incremental improvements and over time you will see great progress. It's all in the pursuit of betterness. So again, thank you so much for listening. Good luck and stay safe.